0: Good evening. It's the issue that never goes away, they'd like it to. In Westminster, there are many parts of mainstream media, but no, the number of people coming into the country, both legally and illegally, is very rapidly going up the political agenda. And is it any wonder? Today, just a pretty ordinary day in the English Channel, and we can see the scenes from the harbour in Dover this morning. Uh, several uh, boats came across today and all of them absolutely jam-packed with people. Um, Here's just a small section of people coming in. You'll notice on that boat they're all young men. Well, of course, that's because 90% of those that cross the channel are men. Some come across the channel in boats that that actually uh, can make the crossing quite easily. Others on very much the second-class cheaper service come in dinghies that are made literally for one journey only. They have plywood glued into the bottom, and the people on them don't even have life jackets. It is pretty extraordinary. We can see some footage now of one of those boats that crossed the Channel today. And have a look in the centre of that boat. Rather than life jackets, they've got inner tubes from tyres. I mean, quite extraordinary. And a boat that size would have had 40 to 45 people on it. So about 300 across the channels a day. It's just an ordinary day. That's another three hotels worth. But we get an announcement from the Home Office tonight that on the 14th of June, the first flight to Rwanda will happen. And those that are going on that flight have been informed of that today. Well, we'll see what happens. My guess is there'll be legal challenges under the Human Rights Act. We're still signed up to Europe's ECHR. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't believe that flight will take off. Or if it does, there'll be hardly anybody on it. But equally important is what's happened on Linton-on-Ouse. You'll notice last night, we broadcast from there, Mark White, GB News' home and security editor was there and there appears to have been because of a concerted local protest. A protest from Kevin Hollingrake, the local MP. The local district council. Residents, in fact, I got an email overnight from someone that lives in the village saying she was absolutely desperate for something to be done. And now we're told the government may be rethinking this. So, my question to you tonight is Does protest work? Farage at gbnews.uk. Uh, Mark White is still in Linton on Ooze and he joins me now. Mark, it does appear, it does appear that widespread publicity, outspoken opposition from the local community, the unsuitability of the site, given that it's a very small, remote village and what on earth would 1,500 young men do if they're deposited there? It does appear, Mark White, that the Home Office are having a rethink.
1: Well, they would certainly dispute the term rethink. Uh, What they are saying is that there is a pause, a temporary pause, on their plans to send asylum seekers to the RAF base just about 100 yards that way, just on the edge of the village there. Um, They say that that is for a couple of reasons, really. One, because there is an impending legal challenge. Uh, The local authority has given the Home Office notice that it may launch a legal bid. Uh, They have cited a number of legal points that they may object to in the courts. And according to the Home Office, they are taking time out to consider those points made by the local authority. In addition to that, though, there are some logistical problems. They wouldn't go into any more detail than that, other than to say some logistical issues, which mean that at the moment it's not possible for them to send the first load of asylum seekers, about 60, who we were expecting to come here today so that's been put on hold for how long we don't know clearly the villagers would love to think that perhaps this is a chink uh, in the armour that uh, it may be the start of a rethink by the Home Office only time will really tell it's certainly very controversial they are aware of this but also Nigel They have an imperative to do something about the increasing numbers of asylum seekers coming across every single day, including today, with up to 300 more coming across the channel. 300 more rooms they have to find accommodation uh, uh, for these asylum seekers.
0: Well, the Home Office do say we're listening to the community and the community, I think, will, um, you know, will feel tonight that actually standing up as firmly as they have might make a difference. But as you say, whether it's linton on Ooze, whether it's a load more hotels, uh, people have to go somewhere unless, of course, there is a serious disincentive for people to cross the Channel and that, of course, would be being sent to Rwanda. Um, do you think that flight will take off? On the 14th of June, or do you think the legal challenges are likely, given the current law, to succeed?
1: I think the government are determined to try to ensure that that flight does take off, but they also acknowledge and they say it in the news release that they put out today that there will be legal challenges likely to have been sparked from these notices that have been passed to an unspecified number. Now, we were told about 100 asylum seekers had been put on initial notice of the possibility they could be going to Rwanda. We then heard that it may have been whittled down to about 50. And these include people who've come across on small boats across the English Channel. Uh, but they won't confirm what the exact number is at the moment. They are determined that it should be a flight going out on the 14th of June. But if it gets into the courts, uh, you and I know that that could be in the court process, in the various different courts, for some considerable time. Uh, the lawyers uh, will be mounting up there to challenge if one appeal goes down, there'll be another appeal, uh, appeal launched. That's the way it works with asylum seekers generally, who are trying to fight their deportation uh, back to their home country. So you can expect a similar type process, probably, with regard to the process to send them to Rwanda.
0: Yeah, no, I suspect so too. Mark, thank you for staying up there in Linton Onus and giving us great reporting. Thank you very much indeed. And I just doubt this will happen. I mean, after all, you know, just recently, we weren't able to deport somebody who actually was a known torturer. It took us years to get rid of Abu Qatada. We need to rethink our membership of the European Convention on Human Rights and the Human Rights Act in this country which incorporates it into law. We don't need any lessons from anyone in Europe about freedom and liberty. Ever since Magna Carta, we've enjoyed it far more than any other country in Europe. And I do feel I must say very strongly about that. Now you'll have noticed it now costs 100 quid. It costs a tonne to fill the car up if you've got a diesel car. Some people now predicting that diesel car sales will go into a terminal decline. Equally, and we've been covering the cost of fuel here on this programme consistently for the last few weeks, but equally now, even the government are looking into, was the 5p cut in duty actually handed on to consumers? And that, on a day, when unleaded is averaging just over 170 pence a litre and diesel is now nearly 183 a litre. What is going on? Are we being ripped off? Well, to answer all of that is Gordon Barmer, executive director of the Petrol Retailers Association. Gordon. Uh, Welcome back to the show. Now, you know the charge. You know the charge. It's coming from the press. It's been picked up by number 10. And, Gordon, you're ripping us off. That's what they're saying. Uh, Quite the
2: contrary, actually. Our uh, members are not ripping them off. In fact, um, if you actually took uh, a delivery of fuel today um, for petrol, for example, and you were priced off of uh, yesterday's price, so um, a lagged basis from yesterday's price... Um, you'll be actually making a loss if you're one of our retailers. So quite the contrary. And we have offered on a number of occasions to go and meet with the government to actually explain how prices work. Uh, But to date, we're yet to hear back from them.
0: Yeah, and I noticed today that uh, Brent crude was up at $123 a barrel. This is after the EU have announced drastic reductions, or whether it actually happens or not remains to be seen, but drastic reductions in the amount of Russian oil that they buy. Um, I'm I'm a bit sceptical about that. But look, I get the point, you know, that, 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 that crude is at a very, very big price. But there's one question, Gordon, that really, really vexes me and I cannot get a straightforward answer to. And it's simply this. If I look at the wholesale price for petrol and the wholesale price for diesel, and I've got these figures today from the RAC, they're bang on the money with where prices are... I see that the wholesale price for petrol is 144p a litre, and the wholesale price for diesel is 134p a litre. And and Howard Cox of the Fair Fuel campaign put us onto this a few weeks ago. So just to repeat for everybody, in simple terms, diesel is 8p a litre cheaper at wholesale where your members buy it, and yet is 10 to 15 pence more expensive at the pump. How? Why?
2: Well, I don't recognise those numbers because the last numbers I've got on, uh, on the wholesale price, which which don't include all the costs, actually, 146 for petrol and 143 for diesel. So we can debate numbers all the, all day, if you
0: like, but I don't all recognise right, well, them. I, mean, I mean, these, Gordon, these came from the RAC foundations, and I've been following their numbers for a few days. So you're saying these figures right. are wrong?
2: I'm saying that I don't recognize their numbers. We, we get our numbers direct from uh, the uh, S&P Global, who monitor uh, product prices each day. I mean, you're a former commodities broker, I understand. I uh, you know how commodities markets work. And uh, we what get it, the numbers hey? direct from the trading desk. So um, we can have a discussion about numbers with the RAC, but um this is again where we want to actually speak to the government because they seem to be taking advice from essentially a motoring organization perhaps they'd like to come and talk to the professionals
0: okay so let me ask you the question again very simply gordon why is diesel so much more expensive than unleaded petrol
2: well there are additional costs on diesel which are not factored in for example one of the big costs that the rac ignore is the cost um or the decrement to our members margins on fuel cards because we don't actually sell fuel to a lot of businesses, particularly haulage firms, at pump price. Uh, they're priced at a vastly lower price, from which our members actually earn uh, a lower margin. So that actually decrements the margin as
0: well. Well, but that's a different issue, isn't it? I mean, what you sell diesel to, to haulage firms at is a different question. My question is why, is, why is Joe Public paying so much more for diesel? I still haven't really got to the bottom of this.
2: Well we import around 20% of our diesel um, and uh, from Russia and uh, unfortunately the quote is going to exclude Russian uh, product from tomorrow in fact so I'm afraid uh, the cost of diesel will increase. Now if I actually look at the cost of diesel today it's actually increased by another 3.7 pence per litre over yesterday unfortunately.
0: I mean is this partly because we've closed down so much of our own refining capacity?
2: Well, um, it's not necessarily just that. It's because a lot of our refineries are set up to produce gasoline. So we've had to import a lot of diesel. 40% of our diesel is imported. Um, And a lot of that was from Russia. So obviously companies are uh, are now having to find alternative sources. And again, that is driving price.
0: OK. Well, Gordon Barmer, Executive Director of the Petrol Retailers Association. I want you to look the GB News viewers in the eye and tell them that the 5P duty has been passed on and that they're not being ripped off.
2: Categorically, the 5P duty has been passed on
0: and you're not being ripped off. Gordon, thank you very much indeed for joining me today on GB Thank News. you, Nigel. Thank you. Okay. And the moral of the story there on diesel is just the same as with so many arguments over energy in this country. The mad dash to go green, to show the world how virtuous we are, means not only are we not self-sufficient in terms of gas and oil, but we've even closed down so many of our refineries, and we're happy for countries like Russia to do it for us on diesel and import it from there. And we wonder why now we're in a mess. For all the time we need to use fossil fuels, and let's hope the amounts we need go down. But for all the time we need to use fossil fuels, we should be self-sufficient in production and in refining capacity as well. And if the government don't learn that, then they don't deserve, frankly, to win the next election. Not that I'm confident Labour get it either. And as a result of joint stupidity of successive governments, we now see a Times front page, yesterday saying to us that six million households could face power blackouts this winter. It's almost inconceivable in a digital computer age that governments could have been so stupid. We'll find out more about that in just a moment. A community, a local council, an MP united in anger in Linton-on-Ouse and the government now, well, perhaps delaying things just a little bit, I'm asking, does protest work? Because it seems to me, I mean, the truth of it is, if it's not Linton-on-Ouse, it will be somewhere else and other people will complain. But it does seem to me that when communities do club together have a degree of unity, and perhaps quite a loud voice, they can actually get things changed. Your reaction to this? Elliot says, protesting draws attention to issues, but after you have people's attention, you need to convince them that you have a good case. Yep, I get that. And their argument, of course, is we're miles away from anywhere. We're a tiny little place of just a few hundred people. What on earth? one and a half thousand young men going to do all day. And that's the logic of the argument they're putting. And actually, I saw similar to this down at Barton Stacey, a disused army camp down in Hampshire. Similarly, the local village, tiny, miles from anywhere. And it appears that one isn't going to happen. Another viewer says, definitely not if it involves blocking motorways or slashing tyres. No, I wasn't arguing for violent protest. I was arguing for united, solid, logical, peaceful protest. Giles says, no, it does not. There is no way our culture should allow violent protest and disruption to others. Policy changes can only take place through peaceful discourse and campaigns. Folks, don't misinterpret me. I wasn't arguing violent protest. I was arguing peaceful protest. And think about, actually think about, you know, insulate Britain. Actually, their actions haven't convinced a single person to support their cause. If anything, it's been the opposite. Matt says, it works about as well as voting. Bit of cynicism there. And Jonathan says, I disagree with protests that are violent or involve disruption to others. The right to protest must continue. And I think that's what's been happening on Linton, on There's not been a scintilla of violence or threats of any kind, but a community and their elected representatives who have been united. Now, I said before the break that it's almost unthinkable. Is it not in 2022 that we could even be thinking about the rationing of energy or blackouts. I mean, we're an island built on coal. We've got huge, vast gas reserves, oil reserves in the North Sea. Uh, We're becoming the Saudi Arabia of wind, according to our Prime Minister Boris Johnson, which is all well and good when the wind blows, but not so clever when it doesn't. How on earth can it be that in this digitised age we face the threat of up to 6 million houses going without power by this October? I think it is the sheer stupidity of successive British governments, both Labour and Conservative and the Coalition. But joining me to discuss this is Malcolm Grimston, Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Environmental Policy at Imperial College London. Malcolm, how can this be? Explain, please. It's worth
3: saying that this is what they call a credible worst case. I'll be extremely surprised if it actually goes that far. It would take an awful lot of things going wrong at the same time to get there. But of course, as you're implying, the, the costs of not fulfilling supply, uh, secure electricity supplies are absolutely horrendous in a modern economy. Even a few seconds of outage can mean you've got to reboot all your systems. Uh, and longer outages, of course, cause problems for people getting into work, for hospitals, for uh, all the things that, uh, that we rely on for our lives. So uh, we do have to take a very cautious approach. I think you've really uh, described it. Uh, for, for many years, many of us have been saying we need to continue investing in secure power supplies. Nuclear being the obvious uh, example, uh, supplies that will be on whether the wind's blowing or the sun's out, and don't leave us enormously dependent on imports of, of oil and gas from countries which may, and sadly, have proved not to be uh, as, as friendly as, as perhaps we might have hoped. Uh, so that's why we've ended up now there is a dreadful trade-off in energy you need secure supplies economic supplies and environmentally acceptable supplies and the problem is hitting all those three nails at the same time is very very difficult and keeping three plates in the air is tough in the early years of this decade we really only looked at environment and i don't think that was helpful now we're recognizing that the others are just as important
0: so, in a sense, what you're saying, Malcolm, is that this is war gaming for the worst-case scenario.
3: Well, it's it, the grid companies and Ofgem have to do this every year. And, in fact, this isn't the first time we've had warnings that what they call the capacity margin. That's the spare power that we don't think is going to be needed, but might be if things turn out very bad, a very cold winter, right. very little wind. But... that happened last year
0: and the like. Yeah. But... You know, we have a war going on in Ukraine. We have a sanctions regime against Vladimir Putin. We've heard Ursula von der Leyen, the unelected boss of the European Union, telling us today, the sanctions are really biting, she said. Well, yes. I look at the oil price and the gas price, and I wonder whether the sanctions aren't biting us a bit more than they're biting Vladimir Putin. And I just wonder, you know, if he was to turn the taps off, It is conceivable, isn't it, that we wouldn't get enough gas to back up our system in, say, February, when a large anticyclone might sit over the UK and the wind turbines don't turn.
3: Yes, I mean, the credible worst case is worse this year than it was last year for those very uh, reasons. It still requires all those things to happen. I wouldn't want people to panic about this. But I do hope this is a wake-up call to us that if we don't look at the long-term issues as well as the short-term crises, we'll just have a string of short-term crises. In the 1970s, the last time that we saw massive oil price increases, it took really 10 years for that to work through the system as we started investing in alternative energy. So we're likely to get there, but it's a shame that we find ourselves in this situation, despite history showing us what happens.
0: Yeah, shame is one word. Disgrace and total mismanagement might be another way of looking at it. But, of course, as part of contingency planning, what we do is to have strategic reserves. I know many countries have huge strategic reserves. Indeed, in America, President Biden has been releasing some of their strategic oil reserve. But as I understand it, our strategic reserve for gas which is absolutely necessary to back up wind when it doesn't work, is the rough deposit up on the east coast. And we have about, am I right in saying, two to three days of strategic backup?
3: Yes, I mean, to be fair, when we had large amounts of gas coming out of the North Sea, the North Sea reserves were their own storage reserve. We could take gas and increase the increase, perhaps not in a day or two's time, but we could increase uh, output from the North Sea. Now, of course, North Sea reserves are getting depleted, not quite as fast as we thought, but they are uh, nothing like they were uh, 15 years ago. And that's why the need for storage has grown in that time. And uh, we did close most of the rough capacity uh, in 2017, because at that stage, it looked like gas uh, around the world was going to be no problem. Huge (laughs) reserves were being discovered all the time. Uh, It just goes to show that if we take short term views of energy, then very quickly we find ourselves in potentially, it says only potentially, but potentially in a very difficult situation indeed.
0: And is this a problem of a lack of strategic forward planning? Is this because politicians who are energy ministers, environment ministers are thinking about the next election and not where the country needs to be in 10 years time? Is that perhaps part of this problem?
3: Yeah, I mean what I think happened was the with the liberalisation of energy in the late nineteen uh, nineties or through the nineteen nineties, um the mantra then, and Nigel Lawson said it in nineteen eighty two, was just to treat energy and electricity like any other commodity. The market will decide. But at the same time, understandably, government has constantly intervened in that market to have non-market outcomes around secure supplies and around environment in particular. And it seems to me we've probably had the worst of both worlds. On the one hand, the government doesn't have the powers it used to to be able to take the decisions itself. But on the other hand, industry is nervous about taking those decisions in case it makes the investment and then faces a price cap or it faces a windfall tax that it can't plan for because governments respond in a fairly capricious way in this sort of way. And I've said before, if we entirely left things to the market and the market have confidence that it could invest, we'd probably be okay. If government took the reins fully and said, right, we're in charge of this and we're going to uh, procure energy from the private sector, that would work okay. But trying to set up a market and then intervene in it at such depth that it can't operate, that's where I think the fundamental problem has been.
0: And a final thought, Malcolm, if I may... On the windfall tax, which would put the tax on profits of the North Sea at 65% uh, for these companies, Uh, it's been applied retrospectively to profits made within the course of the last year. What does this mean for future investment in any form of energy within our country?
3: Well, inevitably, it can't be good for it. You can't just look at a single year of a company uh, like BP or Shell when their investments have, a say, a 30-year horizon. Uh, Two years ago, BP posted a loss uh, over the whole year. This year, once it's written off its Russian assets, it may well be very close to posting another loss uh, today. And I can understand the politics, particularly when so many people are genuinely suffering terribly because of these prices. But this is a short-term uh, source of energy. But it goes back to what I was saying. You can't just look at the short term. You've got to look at the long term. And if you are saying to these companies, invest if you like, but if you make a decent return at any point, we're going to take it off you, we shouldn't be that surprised if the company is then to say, we might decide to
0: go somewhere else. No, absolutely. Malcolm Grimston, thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening. And interestingly, that point about, you know, if you make a lot of money and do well, as an investor in this country, as a company here operating, that we could put a super tax on you, doesn't just apply to energy, it could apply to simply any possible sector. And how is that good for investment? How is that good for growth? How is that good for well-paid jobs? And all of this to raise a maximum of £2 billion, which may sound a lot, but in the scheme of things, isn't very much. I think it's absolutely crazy. Now, what the Farage. I've mentioned it already today. Yep, yeah, it's Ursula von der Leyen. And there she is standing up and saying that EU leaders are now going to do their bit. Yes, they're going to reduce the amount of oil from Russia coming into the European Union by 90% by the end of the year. All sea-bound oil will stop. But the pipeline that comes into Hungary uh, and feeds other countries, neighbouring Hungary, that will continue. So you can believe the European Union on this if you choose to. I would have thought there's about as much chance of this happening as there is the Germans keeping their promises to give some tanks to the Ukrainians, which simply hasn't happened. Now, Russian state media is always a source of amusement or fear, uh, depending on on how you view these things. But uh, Vladimir Sovalov, who's dubbed Putin's voice, every week he makes some outlandish comments about the United Kingdom on his show. Uh, and this was the beauty from yesterday. Look how it
4: will be. Maybe, and where do you stop? Well, when we stop, then we we'll stop. And uh-huh. where do we we'll stop? Well, I haven't said anything. Maybe Stonehenge?
0: Well, Lestrade says that it's she So there we are, Stonehenge. I guess it must be Stonehenge because we had the image, didn't we, of the Queen from each decade um, of her rule put up on the stones of Stonehenge. Um, I don't think we'll take it too seriously, although, of course, humour is nearly always based on some sense of true intent. Some more thoughts and reactions on what's going on on Linton on Ooze. One viewer says, nothing works anymore, not even the petition site. Governments just do what they want to, regardless of the people. That's the joy of two-party systems. Socialist globalism, here we come. There we are, he's given in. Another says, the idea we should wait every four or five years to just use the ballot box is laughable. I've never protested, but as this government gets less democratic with the day, protesting becomes a civic duty. I have to say, folks, I do believe there is a way around this, and, and I do believe in direct democracy. No, genuinely, I do. You see, it was having a referendum on EU membership that gave us Brexit. Parliament would never ever have done it in a month of Sundays. And I actually think that, rather like Switzerland, we should have the right on very big issues. If several million of us sign a validated petition, we should have the right to say to Parliament, we'll make the big decision on this issue and not you. And I think that would be good for our democracy and good for the sense of knowing that actually we really are in charge because we're the masters The people in Parliament are the servants. Anderson says, no, same as public petitions on the government website, kind of pointless. Yeah, they talk about these petitions, but they have no actual force. And finally, Philip says, protesting only works when it coincides with the agenda of governments and powerful interests. An exception to this, of course, was Brexit, which is why the establishment is still so angry about it. That is because, that is because, Philip, It was taken out of their hands. They feared, they feared a rise of an insurgent politician. He's looking at you down the camera and talking to you on the radio right now, and he had to be stopped. The only way to stop him was to give people a referendum, and they thought the people would listen to their elders and betters. But we didn't. We rebelled. Thank God. Now... It's a big week. It isn't just the Jubilee, but of course it's the Epsom Derby coming up on Saturday. And I've got somebody coming on this show in a moment on Talking Pints who's going to give you the winner of the big race on Saturday. It's Gay Kellaway. She'll be here in just a moment. It's that time of the day. Yes, the GB News Tavern has been declared open. The bell has rung. And I'm joined by Gay Kellaway, retired jockey, now racehorse trainer. Gay, welcome,
4: yeah, welcome. to Talking this Pints. Is, this is Nigel Zero beer. <laughs> I, <don't drink. laughs> I believe you. I believe you. We don't
0: force people to drink, but it's just the idea that we have a chat over a drink. Before I get to your life with horses, we must begin by talking about one of the greats. And I remember growing up, and kind of family conversations. What's Leicester Piggott going to ride in the And he was just this giant of horse racing. I mean, his career, it spanned nearly half a century in the saddle. Um, And just your thoughts on Leicester, what he meant to racing.
4: He meant a great deal to everyone. I mean, he was a hero. The old lady off the street would always say, no, Leicester Piggott. Mm. Um, I was fortunate to spend a lot of time with Leicester when I was a kid, because I rode as an apprentice during the years of Leicester's, you know, real height. I mean, I remember the first derby I ever watched on TV from school was the minstrel. The nuns let me <laughs> watch, <laughs> watch the derby. It's
0: unusual for a convent to <laughs> watch a horse racing. <laughs> yeah, race. I
4: know, they did, because they knew I was mad on, on horse racing, so and my dad was a jockey. Uh, anyway, so I was lucky and very, very fortunate, spent a lot of time with Leicester. He was quite a character and... I think he amused himself so much in seeing people's discomfort around him. He had a very sort of uh, very quick, quirky sense of humour. I remember one day I was in the car with him. Sally, his uh, uh, secretary, was driving the car back from the races. And um, he obviously got beat on a favourite and he had his window down. It was a hot summer's day and we didn't have air conditioning in those days. Mm. And a punter came along and (laughs) tried to grab him round the neck. And um, he just said, drive on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and the, was... the
4: punter was running along. It was so funny. <laughs> I was sat in the back of the car. I was only about eighteen, and and he, he was running along. And Lester just, just a wry uh, grin on his face. I mean, that that was Lester. It mean, was a I nightmare for many trainers because he used to do his own thing on the gallops. He hardly yes. ever wanted to spend much time on a horse. He never went. There. If the trainer told him to go a mile, he'd only go a thousand meters. You know, Leicester never went very far. He used to cut across the gallops, drive the gallop men mad because he went all over the closed ground. I used to stick right up his backside because when knew you're Leicester, a genius, you
0: can do things your way and like. Uh,
4: and it, he yes. knew. He knew straight away. I remember he used to be one side of the gallops in Newmarket ride one horse that was fancied for the derby, then disappear and go to the other side of the gallops, all in a space of half an hour, mm-hmm. and ride two horses that were fancied for the derby, but he knew which was the best ride.
0: Yeah, I met him once for lunch, I didn't know him as well as you did, but he was an ex- I mean, you know, 4,493 winners. Nine derbies he won, which is absolutely astonishing. Um, and it's the Derby this weekend. Uh, the Queen, we've got this wonderful Jubilee celebration's coming up. Uh, Thursday's going to be great in London. The weather forecast is good. Trooping the colour, 70 aeroplanes, the Queen yeah. on the balcony. All of that's great. She's not going to be at Epsom, we're told. Um, but you know the winner of the Epsom Derby, <laughs> don't you? Oh, I've told everybody that you know the winner.
4: <laughs> well, here's the thing. Um, well, it's very apt name. Uh, Desert Crown would be the favourite. Young jockey that's never uh, ridden a winner of the, of the, of the Derby, um, Richard Kingscote. Um, so Michael Stout has had several winners of the Derby. Yep. Um, Desert Crown is a very apt name. We've also got Aidan O'Brien, who's nearly, win- he's nearly just one short of um, having as many Derby winners as Leicester. Mm. A brilliant trainer from Ireland. He's got Changing of the Guard. Or Perfect. Stone Age. I like the whole <laughs> Stone Age. Changing the Guard has a bit of advantage over all of them because he's won over the distance. And uh, Aidan O'Brien sort of throws up a few long shots in, over the years. He had a big long shot winner many years ago. Um, whereas uh, Stone Age is a front runner, which would suit, suit the Derby course. So uh, there's a few in it, but I'd go for the name. Being it's it, it, it just just would be great. Well. So Sir Michael has a runner for the Queen on the same day. hasn't got a run in the Derby. Uh, he's got just fine. And um, of course, uh, the, the the closest the Queen's come to a winner. Uh, in the Derby is Oriel. That's probably yes. the best horse she's ever owned. In 1953, uh, when it was coronation week, and she finished second to pinza. That's right. So that's the closest the Queen. Yeah, the Queen's contest. never won the Derby. No, no sadly. No, lots, sadly,
0: she's no, she's she, she kept the other crown, but she's never had the Derby. <laughs> that's one. right.
4: And, and Gay, we talk
0: about Leicester. You know. And about jockeys and a life of jockeys, and and you loved horses clearly growing up. It was your obsession. You wanted to be a jockey, and you were age 17 a jockey. And, you know, a woman in very much a man's world. But similar challenges in one way, because, I mean, you know, Lester was five foot eight or five foot eight and a bit. So he wasn't exactly a a tiddler in terms of height and managed to live his adult life two stone underweight, living on a diet of champagne and cigars, basically. I mean, When you, you know, wanted to be a jockey, how does a jockey live? How does a jockey eat? You've got to keep your weight to a ridiculous level, haven't you?
4: Fortunately, things have changed a bit more. Jockeys are taller, bodies have changed, so we've upped our weights over the years. But in my day and Lester's day, I mean, how Lester lived to 86 is beyond me. He used to live on a glass of champagne and a scar. Mm. Uh, he really was so dedicated. And most of the jockeys in, in my era, we used to have to... We called it wasting. Dieting was called wasting. Mm. You did have to really reduce weight. And, I mean, I lost a stone. I mean, I was light anyway. I was eight stone, but I went down to seven stone... Something like seven stone four. And I was riding, like, 49 kilos. And, you know, we had to really... And our weights were lower. Like, the lowest weight riding was seven stone. So what
0: was your diet when you were racing competitors
4: <laughs> Not a lot. Uh, and we didn't have all the... We didn't have dietitians... Uh, you didn't have mental health problems in those days. You had to get on with it, and I had a lot of bullying and harassment when I was riding in the 80s.
0: Is that because you were a woman in a man's world?
4: Uh, a little girl, <laughs> probably. And they used to—I mean, Willie Carson used to, you know, you know, say like, "Oh, don't, you know, don't get beat by the girl." And Pat Edgery. but Lester was so professional. He said to my dad, he said. Yeah, she, go, she rides well, this girl. You know, she's got good hands and she, she, she'd make a jockey. And he always gave me advice. You know, Lester was never, never, never chauvinistic. He, he was a very, very kind person. You know, deep down, a very kind man. He was always very, very kind to me, and always used to say, "Or follow me, or you know, give me a bit of advice." So
0: he he had some other problems with with money and tax, and we know about that. Just careful with money. I I, I, (laughs) I
4: never ever saw him pay for anything. He always made me laugh, when he made everybody pay. I I think the judge took
0: a different view, (laughs) but never. And Gay, you know, you were the first woman to win a race at Royal Ascot.
4: Yes, uh, the Queen Alexandra. And I named, fortunately, I, I was able to buy my own stables 18 years ago and I renamed the stables the Queen Alexandra Stables. Um, a horse called Sprouston Boy, owned by coal miners. They couldn't believe it, they were stood in the paddock with the Queen. You know, even... Could you believe it? <laughs> um I, I thought the horse was very good, and just, it, it wasn't, it's such, we didn't have social media in those days, it wasn't mm. such a big deal, you know, Nigel, and, and, and basically, you just got out and did the job, and I thought, I disobeyed uh, my dad's orders, he trained the horse, and I thought, I'd just kick on this horse, I knew he stayed, it was heavy ground, he meant up being a very good hurdler, so I thought I'd just kick on and from 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 uh, Swindley Bottom and I, I just kicked and kicked and kicked and kept riding and riding and I looked round I couldn't believe how far I was ahead.
0: You did it. <laughs> no, it's about <laughs> right it anyway. All
4: gravel, Pat Odie, <laughs> Willie Carson, <laughs> Esther, all behind me, but yeah, no, it but it wasn't such a big deal. I had headlines in the sports life. It would be now. Life. Yeah, it would.
0: And now, of course, now of course, racing has a female superstar jockey over the jumps, Rachel Blackmore. I was there. I was at Cheltenham uh, when she won the Gold Cup, the Grand National. Um, Does the racing industry now give women a fair crack it?
4: Absolutely. Holly Doyle, for instance, this week, she rides in the Oaks. She's got a fancied runner in the Oaks, and she's a marvellous rider. She's wonderful for racing, as is Rachel, and there's some wonderful girls come along. But in my day, we never really got a chance. I mean, I started riding... You know, after riding a big winner, they they weren't knocking me down to put me up because it was still very old-fashioned and, you know, men were riding horses, not women. There was very few stable girls in in, in the stables uh, working, grooms. Uh, well, now it's it's, it's big. I mean it's fifty-fifty. Even more girls are, right, uh, are working in stables than, than boys. So it's, it's, things have changed. Everything's changed. In and now
0: you're a trainer, so it's still horses. <laughs>
4: I've been training for two years. But, but yeah. now
0: you've got to deal with the owners as well, haven't you?
4: Yes, yes, and it's all about managing people. and I, I Expectations? Expectations. Because everyone
0: buys a racehorse and thinks <laughs> it's going to be a champion.
4: Yeah, but we're all on the same page, so we all want the same thing. But it's great fun, it's great fun. You know, I don't have massively big owners, but we have some lovely people, working-class people, have horses with me, and we get together, and um, the prize money is massive in the UK, so... So basically, we just have a lot of fun. It's a social thing, and um, you know anybody can come and own a racehorse or a share of a racehorse now, and, and get involved and, and have a good day out.
0: And is day racing, racing in is racing in a good place as an industry?
4: As an industry in the UK, we have a few problems, like most sports. Um, I think we have a problem with massively with the with the prize money, and it's hard to keep a horse uh, in training for a long time. This we basically- find we're selling. I sold a good filly not not so long ago because I had to. Financial reasons, um, we can't keep these fillies all uh, geldings or colts in the stable. We have to sell them on abroad, and they go to Australia, Hong Kong, or even the Middle East now. So the better horses, even Japan, they took our best mares. You know, so it's it's massively abroad and big bigger mm. money, uh, richer. People. It's a real
0: global sport, isn't it? In every Absolutely,
4: way. and it employs an awful lot of people. Yeah, an awful lot of people. But
0: your love for horses, your, I mean, you know, not just about riding winners or training winners, your love for horses, the animals, your relationship with them. You know, just share with our audience the, the, um, the mission you've just been on.
4: Well, um, you know, when I was sitting watching the news, I, I could see there was obviously in Ukraine with, with terrible trauma and, 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 and war with these poor people. But they also have animals, you know, dogs, cats and horses. And they've lost everything. They've lost their home. They've had no jobs. They have no money. Um, and they had left their horses and animals behind. Um, I mean, they lived in hope and just let the horses go at loose. And we have a hub um, just uh, sort of 30 minutes uh, from the border of Ukraine, uh, near Lviv. Um, and what, what we have a girl called Charlie Thornico, a young girl who took over the hub English girl uh, running it um, she's from a military background and and she'd been working in charities in the uk. She went over there for three days just to help them out. she's been there for six seven months now mm. and we've she's rescued um, w- within a group of us over four hundred horses to get them across the border and what they have horses have chips in chips in them and and passports and these people have let them loose and we r- try and reunite. But the horses, you know, but they're in a terrible state. You know, even the dogs are in a terrible state. You can imagine.
0: But, I mean, mean the whole history of, well, animals and war, you know, and we now understand more about this um, than perhaps we used to, but particularly horses in war, you know, horses in war. And uh, for those watching this on television, you can see some of the animals in Ukraine. But horses in war, and I've read, I've read accounts, you know, of people serving on the Western Front in the First World War, you know, saying that actually the, the distress to the animals upset them as much as the distress to their fellow man. I mean, something like 8 million horses died during the First World War. And with the Nazi invasion of, of, of Ukraine and, 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 and Russia, probably even more horses died in World War Two. So, you know, horses, mules, donkeys, they paid a terrible price
4: in war, haven't they? Yeah, to help mankind. Yeah. And it's very, very sad, and it breaks my heart, and... Um and we're kind of going through the same sort of thing. but You know, are we, we've rescued people as well as the horses. Yeah. We rescued a couple, the that, that, that daughter. and uh, uh, She had mental health problems uh, through COVID. Uh, her mother and her escaped Ukraine. Russians had m- invaded their village and they had to flee with their little dog and, and horse. And we've managed to get them to our Holland Hub, which you've just seen on the TV there, yeah. across to Portugal. And found them a, a, a wonderful home. And that's a great story, but there's so many, just few. There's well, you've
0: done what you can.
4: All you can do is your bit, can't and you? And you can't do any and more. And the than British that. really have stepped up m- more than any other country, believe me, when it comes well, to the animals.
0: Yeah. I think in lots of ways, Brexit Britain is standing up and giving a lead on many, many things. And will you be at Epsom at the weekend? I will indeed, yeah. And well,
4: hopefully the Queen might turn up. You never know. Well, you,
0: do you know what? She actually's looking really well, isn't she? The sort yes. of pictures. I know she's got some mobility problems, but yeah, she might just surprise everybody. She might surprise us. Gay, okay, thanks for coming Thank on you, Nigel. and talking to us about all things horse. Thank, Thank you. you.
4: Cheers.
0: It's time for barrage the Farage. You send your questions in. One viewer asks me. With everything being cancelled, how long until the woke mob try and cancel horse racing citing animal welfare? Well, do you know, Gay, okay, I was at um, Cheltenham Gold Cup Day and there were protesters outside the ground. They want jump racing banned. There's no question about that. Do you fear that for the horse racing industry?
4: I fear for the... Ro- I'm not a jump trainer. No, I know jump that. Trainer. You understand, I'm, I'm flat. Yeah. But I do fear that could come... And when that comes, what else are they going to ban? We'll have no horse racing. And like I say, it's a global enterprise and we employ an awful lot of yeah.
0: people. Yeah. And if they ban jump racing or horse racing, then the horses won't get bred in the first place, will they? They
4: won't get bred in the first place. And believe me, race horses get a wonderful life. Yeah. 99% of them, they have a wonderful... It's, for, it's like five-star hotels they're staying in.
0: I believe that. I believe that. With people like you looking after them, I believe that. Alistair asks, Bradford has been named City of Culture. Thoughts? Uh, well, <laughs> look, I know Bradford quite well. Um, City of Culture, yes, but, you know, I guess people will ask the question, what culture? Let's hope that it's a British culture. Interestingly, though, Bradford, with its big, big... Religious and racial mix, Bradford voted leave. So, actually, I think Bradford might do rather well. One last question. Robert asks, who do you think was at fault, the Liverpool fans or the French authorities? I have absolutely no idea, but you can see the way the French police things, and thank goodness we live in this country and not in France, is all I can say. I am done for today. I'm back with you tomorrow at 7 o'clock.